Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Amen. Good morning, church. Today's reading will be taken from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. At the end of the reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Kindly respond by saying thanks be to God. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said... In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time, he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? To some who are confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Ah, that's what I expected. That sounds about right. Thank you so much for having me. I consider it an actual joy and privilege to be with you the Church of Jesus Christ here in Lagos. Even greater than being at the conference is this right now for me. I said it at the conference, I've I've said it to Femi many times, there's a very warm and hospitable quality to you guys. I have been pampered this whole week, I've been telling my wife, she told me, yeah, just don't expect that when you come back, eh? (laughs) Yeah, I know know I'll walk in and she'll be like, do you want dinner? And I'll be like, yeah, she's like, the kitchen is over there. (laughs) You can sort yourself out. 
Um, but thank you so much. Special thanks to you, Femi. Thank you for loving me and loving my family and caring for this uh, beautiful congregation. Um, I pray the Lord continues to bless you. I've told him this in private. I will now embarrass him in front of all of you. I think, guys, your church and Femi's leadership is honestly, without exaggerating, the best hope this country has. I, and I say that, and I say that not because, not because there's something unique about you as a church or you as individuals. I say that because you have kept the main thing the main thing. What this country needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else we want to flow comes from that. And thank you for doing that in a country where that's not often the case. So thanks so much for doing that. We admire and respect you where I am from. Um, I also meant to mention there are many Africans in my church. For every one Kenyan, there's nine Nigerians. Um, <laughs> it is what it is, man. I think I thought I'd come back learning Arabic. I think I'll come back learning Yoruba uh, at this rate. If you have your Bibles, I know you've switched them on to Luke chapter 18. And that's where we are going to be hanging out for a bit. Let me ask, have you ever been disappointed by something? You put your trust in something and it didn't quite work. It might be something small, like you trusted in a chair and it just collapsed. <laughs> or maybe something bigger. This world has no shortage of things to disappoint us. I have a friend who <laughs> went to buy um, a phone from a shop and he bought the phone and he was saying Apple and he was like, fantastic. Bought the thing, switched it on and he said Samsung. Um, I think it's safe to say that's the last time he's going to that shop. And in, sometimes, you and I, our lives can feel like that. We go into something thinking, this is what will fulfill me, and then it doesn't work. We get disappointed, we become distrusting, we become even distrusting of God. We start asking, does he know when I'm suffering? Does he hear me when I'm praying? Especially when I'm in distress, does he hear me? Does he care? Will he listen? What I hope to leave us with is a deep trust in God today. Specifically, a deep trust that we can keep trusting God and pray to him continually until he returns or calls us home. So in our text today, we are going to walk through it, but let me bring us up to speed on how Jesus ends up here in Luke chapter 18. He's been telling a bunch of parables, a bunch of stories, the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, the story of the lost son, the story of the dishonest manager. He's been telling these things that are called parables. And a parable is a story with a central spiritual truth that Jesus is trying to communicate. And these two stories, it's two parables, one of the unjust judge and the other of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, I know in your Bible it's called the persistent widow, but stick with me, and I'll show you why I'm phrasing it as the unjust judge. Because what you'll see in both these stories is that although there's a lot of prayer, the central issue is trust. Can we trust God when we pray? Can we trust God to come through? So, Luke chapter 18 from verse 1. And he told them, pause, who is them? That them starts out in chapter 17 verse 20. Jesus has been telling them, here is how the kingdom of God will come. Verse 20 says this, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Pay attention to verse 22. And he said to the 
disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. In other words, he's telling them, the day is coming when I will come back. Because the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I will come back to rule this world, not just spiritually, as he is doing right now, but physically, economically, socially, territorially, everything. He's going to rule it all. And he's been telling his disciples, hey, this is how the kingdom will come. Verse eight, chapter 18, verse 1. Now he told them, the disciples, who is the them? Disciples. A parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Then he goes into this story. And the story has two characters. It has a lesser character and a main character. Pay attention to both these characters, but pay attention specifically to the main character, who is the judge. Verse 2. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Right there, he's giving you a hint. He's giving you a hint about how he's setting it up. He's telling you, pay attention to the character of this judge. He neither fears God nor respects man. And that idea of does not respect man means he has no shame. He has no shame, which is interesting in an honor-shame culture, in a culture where everything was based on honor and shame. And if, you, if you think about it seriously, this guy doesn't fear God and doesn't fear people. Jews would wake up and pray this thing called the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the Shema because in Hebrew, that's the first word. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh, Elohinu, Yahweh, Yihad. In other words, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. The first thing they would do is remind themselves to fear God. Your judge does not fear God. Has no shame before man. This guy is not just a bad judge. He's a bad Jew. He's a bad person. He doesn't care what God thinks. He doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care what anyone else thinks. Now think about it. If you have a guy who's a judge and doesn't care about God, doesn't care about people, that's the perfect recipe for impunity. That means he's going to do whatever he wants on his own terms and he doesn't care what you think. How do we know that? Look at how he treats the widow. 18 verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. She has to keep coming to him. Let me tell you why that's odd. Because the judge knew the law, right? That's a judge's job. Israel was the only nation in the history of the world that got their laws directly from God. So this is not just a bunch of people sat in a room and came up with laws. He knows God's law. And God's law is categorically clear on how he should serve this widow and how quickly he should serve this widow. I'll read it for you in the interest of time. From Exodus chapter 22, here's what God says about how he wants widows treated. Exodus 22 verse 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. It's not that the judge doesn't know this law. He just doesn't care. Here's Deuteronomy. Chapter, let's go to chapter 27, verse 19. Again, I'll read it for you in the interest of time. This is the law of God. This is how he's supposed to treat the widow. Cursed be anyone who perverts justice, 
due to the sojourner, fatherless, and the widow. He doesn't care that there's a curse on his head if he perverts or prevents justice for the widow. Because remember, he doesn't even fear God. So what does a curse mean to him? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Put a little mental note on that idea of a bribe. Eh? He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, <laughs> and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Do you, cut, do you see it? The judge knows the laws. He just doesn't care about the laws. The fact that this widow has to keep coming is a problem. And think about that word, widow. Think about it in your own native language. Even in English, I don't care what language you speak, the word widow is an emotive word. It makes you feel something. You don't say widow and say, oh, it's the same as a student. No. Makes you feel a certain way. But your judge here feels nothing. To the point where she's now forced to follow him. <laughs> she says, give me justice, give me justice. In the original language, it's like she kept following Everywhere he went, he wakes up, she's there. He goes for a jog, she's there. He pours his coffee, she's pouring it with him. Like, she's been forced to do this. Because in Jewish culture, in the first century, the only way to get representation for you if you are a woman was through a man. So you couldn't bring a case to the judge. You had to go through your husband, or your father, or your adult son. She's a widow, no husband to bring her case. There's no father, it seems, so her father is not able to do it. If she has kids, none of those kids are adult children. So what is she supposed to do? Bang down this guy's door until he gives her justice. It's ridiculous. She shouldn't have to do this. And she says, give me justice against my adversary. It seems that there was a more powerful, probably more rich adversary than her. And it seems like she has a legitimate case. Because the judge never says, no, you don't have a legitimate case. I have to hear this other guy. It's just like everyone seems to know that this guy is the adversary. Everyone seems to know that she's owed something. The judge is like, yeah, not today, not today, another day. In fact, he probably doesn't say anything to her. He actually doesn't say anything to her. Now, this is not in the text. But remember that thing I said about bribes? This is not in the text. But a common practice in the first century and in the 21st century was what the judge would do is they'd play both sides. Here comes the plaintiff, the widow, and say, oh, you want some justice? Give me some money and I'll give you some justice. 10,000, okay. Then he goes to the defendant and says, you know, I could charge you a lot, but if you give me 15,000, I can let you get scot-free. He gives 15. He goes back to her. Ah, you only gave me 10 now. Give me 20. And he plays both sides and writes two rulings, depending on who gives him more money, right? That definitely happens in my country. And it's not in the text, but a guy this callous, I would not put it past him. Then the text says, he said to himself, verse 4, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself. Now at that point, if you're just reading through the Gospels, you might be encouraged to see that phrase. Because when Jesus would tell parables, that phrase said to himself was used to show you a turn is about to happen. The prodigal son wasted his life, then he said to himself, right? The, the dishonest manager squandered resources, then he said to himself. It's a resolve to act. And you're thinking, ah, okay, maybe this is going to go well. Uh, not so much. 
He says he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, this widow keeps bothering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. He's not doing it because he cares about the case. He just wants to get rid of her. In fact, that the language, and there's a, there's a translation difference, it's like she keeps coming, she's beating me down, she's wearing me out, I can't stand this. Can someone get rid of her? Okay, fine, here's your justice, go away, please. He's bothered by her. Now pay special attention to Jesus' own interpretation of this judge in verse 6 and 7. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Let's go till verse 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What Jesus is doing here is he's just given us a picture of an unrighteous judge, right? A horrible judge. And then he says, listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God, if this is the unrighteous judge, who is God? The righteous judge. But listen, he's not drawing a parallel between them. He's making a contrast. He's not saying, you see this unrighteous judge? Yes. You see how he had to be bothered so that he gives the widow what she wants? Yes. In the same way God is a judge? Yes. You have to bother him so that you get what you want. He's not drawing a parallel. He's saying these guys are like chalk and cheese. They are polar opposites. There is nothing similar about them. This guy is an unrighteous judge. This guy is a righteous judge. This guy has to be pestered. This guy is a righteous judge who will always do what's right by the law. You see, many of us learned this story as, do you want God to do something? March down the doors of heaven. Bang down the doors of heaven. Pray until 3 a.m. until God does something. Friend, you realize when you do that, you're making God sound like the unrighteous judge. As though he doesn't want to help. As though he doesn't want to give you what's right. As though he doesn't want to do right by you. He's not an unrighteous judge. The unrighteous judge was a bad Jew. The righteous judge is a good God. The unrighteous judge, for him, this was a random widow. For the righteous judge, these are his elect. Who are the elect? Everyone who God had set his affection on to save before time began. Everyone who had God called them, come to me, turned away from their sin and trusted in him. That's the elect. The chosen are those who have now believed in Jesus Christ and who are yet to believe in Jesus Christ. It's Ephesians 1. In love, 1 verse 4, he predestined us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he chose us to be adopted as his children in his family. These are not random widows. These are not people he has no relationship with. This is his bride, his chosen, his church. For the bad judge, she's a bother. For the good judge, she's his primary concern. For the bad judge, he's unavailable. For the good judge, he's eternally available. For the bad judge, he denies and delays justice. For the good judge, he's swift and speedy with justice. For the bad judge, all he has is derived authority. Romans 13, the only authority he has is the one he got from God. The good judge is the authority. And that's why verse 7 to 8 matters. 
And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Speedily. Then he asks, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will I find faith? Well, rather, will he find faith on the earth? That phrase, Son of Man, it doesn't just mean that Jesus was man. That's actually a much bigger term. It's being taken all the way from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7 from verse 13 and following, Daniel has this vision of God and of heaven. And one like the Son of Man has been given all authority over all nations as the judge and king of the universe. Jesus is saying, I am that Son of Man. I am that king and judge of the universe. And I will grant justice to my elect. The million dollar question there is, Will Jesus find faith on the earth? And what that means is, Jesus is saying, will I find my faithful still trusting me, shown in them praying to me, the righteous judge, between now as they're alive and when I return? Will I find the faithful doing that? See, the issue for Jesus is not whether God will respond to prayer. The issue for Jesus is whether we will persist in prayer. And right there, we have to pause. Because Jesus says, while they pray, I will give them justice speedily, quickly, swiftly. That throws a bit of a spanner in our works, right? It's a bit of a monkey wrench. Because when we see he will give us justice, we are like, amen. When we see him say, I will give you justice speedily, we are like, eh, speedily. Because that's just not how we experience justice, is it? We pray to God for deliverance from our adversaries, the world, the flesh, the devil, and we don't tend to experience it speedily. We pray, God, break this besetting sin in me that I've been struggling with for the last five years. And we don't see him answer that prayer after five minutes. We pray, Lord, I'm tired of being tempted by Satan and him lying in my ear. Please, Thwart the works of Satan in my life. We don't feel that or experience that immediately. We pray, Lord, I'm struggling not to enter the world and just be like them. This feels much easier. Help me. We don't experience instant help, do we? Now you guys are looking at me with your spiritual faces like, no, that never happens to me. I'm perfectly fine. For the rest of us normal Christians, we struggle. We don't seem to experience this justice instantly, speedily. And that's a good place for us in the text to step back and say, okay, what does speedily mean from God's perspective? Not from ours. Because God is working with a much bigger timeline than our 60, 70, 80, 90-year-old lives are. It's a good place to pause and say, in view of eternity, my life is so short. And the justice I'm looking for, whether in this life or the next, is actually speedy. When I was in primary school, they, they taught us that a line is a series of dots, right? Put many dots together, you create a line. That line can be a painting, that painting can be a masterpiece. A little while ago, my baby sister and her boyfriend went to, to an art gallery and they were like looking at art and they were falling in love with art. They were falling in love with each other. It was fantastic. 
But you see, if you are lying in the painting, if you're a dot on the line in the painting, you don't know what effect you're having. You don't see the whole picture. Right? You're just a dot. You're trying to figure out who are these other dots. <laughs> but friend, God has the whole picture. And your life and my life is a little dot in this eternal tapestry, this eternal masterpiece of salvation. So we don't see the whole picture. We don't experience justice speedily. But when you step back and look at it from God's perspective, working on an eternal canvas, that's what Ephesians 3.10 is about, that God is using this church, not just your life, this church, to eternally display the manifold wisdom of his salvation, you realize that justice is going to come speedily, whether in this life or the next. God through his son Jesus Christ, the king and judge and the son of man, will deliver you justice. So you are the guy who was faithful in the finances and everyone else in the office decided we need to cook the books, steal some money, and you said no. And you thought, this will be great, I'll get a promotion. You didn't know the boss was in on it. <laughs> and they worked with those guys and you got fired. And you're thinking, where's my justice? Child of God, would you hear your king say, I will bring you justice, whether in this life or the next. You might not experience it that quickly, but it will be speedy. So you're the lady who got married, was faithful to your husband, gave of yourself and your life and your body, and he turned out to be a philandering, cheating mess. And he ran away with the secretary at work. And they seem fine. And you're left heartbroken. Where is your justice? Daughter of the king, would you hear your king say, I will deliver you justice. I will vindicate you. Whether in this life or the next. So you're the person who has been struggling with the same besetting sin for like 10 years. You might have disordered affections and you're attracted to the wrong gender. Or you're struggling with a different kind of sin that might embarrass you to even tell the person next to you who you've known your whole life. Would you hear your king say, I will not let you wallow in that. The day is coming when I will not only set you free from the penalty of sin which he did at the cross, from the power of sin which he's doing by sanctifying and sustaining you, but from the very presence of sin. There's coming a day when you will not be able to have a sinful thought. Your justice will come. You're the person who's facing intense temptation from Satan. And his lies seem more appealing about how you're useless, how you're worthless, or how you're that much bigger deal. People should recognize you more. And you know that's why Satan is called the tempter and the accuser, right? He tempts you to do the wrong thing. Then when you sin, he accuses you, how could you sin? That's his job. Ah, but there's coming the day when you will see him fall like lightning. And he will be trampled under your foot. The question you and I have to answer is, will Jesus find us faithful? Will he find us praying when he comes? Here's the good news. That's actually a rhetoric question for the believer. The answer to that question is yes. 
Because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Will he find you praying when you breathe your last? Yes. If you are in Christ, you are his project and he has never fumbled a project. You will make it safely home. But we persist and we pray until he returns or calls us home. So then he goes into this second parable from verse 9. And while the first parable was about trusting God as we pray, this one is not so much about God giving us justice when we pray, but about God trusting God to justify us as we pray. The first one was about God doing right by us. This one is how we can be right with God. Do you see it? One was about receiving justice. This one is about how we can be justified before God. So look at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Ah, his audience has changed. His first parable was to who? The disciples. His second parable is to who? The Pharisees. They are the ones who trust themselves and treat others with contempt. And by the way, that's a common feature of those who are self-righteous. They treat everyone else as being beneath them. Again, pay attention to the two characters. Because Jesus is hinting in his stories. He always hints. Those who trust themselves. That's what he wants you to have in mind. Listen to those who trust themselves. There are two characters with one main character. Let's read through it. Verse 10. Two men went up to pray. Rather, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Listen to the Pharisee. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, it's a problem when you go to pray and you unleash your CV for God. <laughs> I'm just saying. This guy is his own gauge about whether he's right with God or not. This guy has set the terms and conditions for his righteousness and rightness with God all in his own little head. My brother is a neurosurgeon, and he says the human cranium is a very small, very dark place to go around looking for truth. And this guy is now telling God who is truth. Yeah, let me tell you how right I am with you. This Pharisee, who was likely rich, look at what he does. First thing is he stands afar by himself, separating himself from all of these unholy commoners. And then scripture says he prayed thus. If your Bible has a superscript, the direct translation of that, is, even in the original language, is he prayed to himself. That's what, the, that's what the original language actually says. Two men went up to pray, one decided to pray to himself. And what was the content of his prayer? Himself. Look at this content. God, I thank you. Now that's a good start, right? God, I thank you for giving me life. God, I thank you for giving me health. God, I thank you for saving me. So you think, okay, good start. God, I thank you. What does he say? That I. Usually you thank someone else. This guy is thanking himself. I thank you that I am so amazing. <laughs> Literally, he gives God his CV. 
It's almost as though he's telling God, God, if you knew what was good for you, you'd know how privileged you are to have me in your camp. <laughs> Gives his resume that I'm not like all these other people, unjust, extortioners, adulterers. And he's taking shots at the tax collector who's right there. Eh? <laughs> but friend, you see what he's doing? He's just created two classes of sins, respectable sins and unrespectable sins. What are these unrespectable sins? Extortioning, adultery. Those are, those are unrespectable sins. Oh, but his pride is a respectable sin. Remind me, what does Proverbs say about pride? Yeah, God loathes it. Very strong word. He hates it. Fastest way to get God opposed to you, be proud. But this is the respectable sin, according to the Pharisee, who's created his own system of being right with God. This other guy has unrespectable sins. Huh. He says if I fast twice a week, which is impressive, because Jews generally would only fast like once a year by this time. I give 10% of all I have. Think about how much work that is. Eh? This, there wasn't a cash economy at the time. It's not like you could get your salary, take 10% and send it to City Church Lagos. There was no wire transfers. It means you'd get all your cows, count 10% here. Get all your wheat, 10% here. Get all your mint, 10% here. It is an arduous task. But you see what the Pharisees were doing with that. They were creating a whole new set of laws so that they could obey them. Why? To put God in their debt. God, you should give me whatever I want and you should give me eternal life because I am a cut higher than everyone else. They were not righteous. It was self-righteous. And the most messed up part of this prayer, I'm not like these other people, or even this tax collector. Not only is he taking shots at the tax collector, he's using prayer to condemn a sinner. Ever been in one of those prayer meetings? Father, we thank you for Femi. Would you just help him stop eating bananas outside our house? And Lord, we thank you for Lola, but if she can just leave her lollipop wrappers outside, we, we would be very grateful. Uh, Lord, just help her, help her repent of such things. Ever been in those prayer meetings? If you've never been in those prayer meetings, you might be the one who was praying those prayers. <laughs> Meanwhile, the tax collector stands far off, not in a place of prominence like the Pharisee. The tax collector won't even look to heaven. That's a big deal, because the posture that Jews used to take to pray was this. And you'll even hear Paul talk about that. I want men to pray with lifting holy hands. That was just a Jewish form of prayer, that you look to heaven because you're addressing God and have your palms up. This guy is like this. And then scripture says he beats his chest in humility before God. And he says, be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. Direct translation, be merciful to me, O God, the sinner. The fundamental difference between these two guys. He's not comparing himself to other people. He's comparing himself to God. It's as though if there was no one else in the room, I am the sinner. In this room where only God is, I am the sinner. The Pharisee compares himself to others, the tax collector to God. The Pharisee treats others with contempt. The tax collector treats his sin, his own sin, with contempt. The, tax, the Pharisee considers himself right with God. The tax collector considers himself wrong before God. 
The Pharisee is so righteous, he doesn't need mercy. The tax collector is so sinful, he begs for mercy. And he says, be merciful to me. That word only appears one more time in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And in that text, it's referring to Jesus' atoning work for sinners. Directly translated, he's not only praying, God, be merciful to me. He's saying, God, be my mercy seat. Make atonement for my sin. That word atonement is actually from English. It means at one meant. God, let me be one with you because the only thing I've brought to this temple is the sin that desecrates the temple. And you would be right if you vanquished me. You would be right if you punished me. So God, please be my mercy seat. In short, he's saying, God, save me. I have nothing else to offer but my sin. And listen to Jesus' response to this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. This man went down to his house justified. In other words, he went to his house right with God. That's what that word justified means. To be made right with God. To be treated justified just as if you never sinned. He went down not bearing the wrath of God. Why? Because he believed that God could save him. See, the Pharisee should have known this. The Pharisee had read Genesis 22. The Pharisee knew that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It is by faith that he was made right. That's the only way to be made right with God, by believing in God. This Pharisee didn't get it. He missed that somehow. He knew the Old Testament better than anyone else. And he completely missed it. The tax collector understood, I can only have to believe in God, accept him as a sinner, and he will save me. So dear Pharisee in the room, you're a really nice guy. You're a really nice girl. You're the person who doesn't sleep around. You always tithe. You always give. You might sing in the worship team. You might be in the ushering team. You might lead a small group. And the people around you encourage your piety. They say you're so amazing. But in your heart, you are a self-righteous Pharisee. You think you're better than everyone else. And God is so lucky to have you in his team. Hear this from a recovering Pharisee. All your good works, all your attempts to put God in your debt won't work. And maybe you just grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you were just born a Christian. It's all you know. Maybe you think being a Christian means I left this set of practices in the Islamic world and started this set of practices in the Christian world. That's not it. Being a Christian means doing what the tax collector did, admitting that I am the sinner. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My hope of life is not in me, but only in you. Make me right with you. But beloved Pharisee, that can only happen if you recognize your only atoning sacrifice, the only sacrifice that can take on all of the wrath of God that he should pour on you is only in Jesus Christ. You have to believe in him and he will justify you. He will justify you. You know who was like the Pharisee and then became a tax collector? 
Paul. Paul unleashes his CV in Philippians chapter 3. If Paul was having a conversation with the Pharisee, he would tell him, oh, you think you have reason to be proud before God? I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then listen to him. But whatever gain I had counted, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered loss and count them all as rubbish. The original language, that word actually is dung. If your child said that, you'd make him eat soap. That's how strongly he feels about his former CV. That that is all dung. It's rubbish. All I want is to know Jesus by faith. That's more than enough for me. Will you reject whatever else you're trusting on right now to justify you before God? And believer, that doesn't mean we escape. No, 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 no. We are not exempt from the sneaky sin of pride. We are so proud, we don't even know when we are being proud. It's like having a shadow. It's always there with us. We are so proud that in our heads, we think of statements like, you know, I should probably write a book about humility and how I attained it. <laughs> and my second book will be pride and how I overcame it. Which is a proof of because pride is the sin of comparison. So who are you comparing with yourself with right now? Whose faith are you comparing yourself with right now? And, and I don't even mean in the sense that, oh, I'm better than so-and-so. I mean in the other sense. I want to be so-and-so. It's still comparison. Who should we compare ourselves to? Christ. That doesn't mean we don't learn from people. Scripture says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's absolutely fine. It's good. It's healthy. We should all be doing that for one another. Older women teaching the younger women. Older men teaching the younger men. Us guys all helping one another. Absolutely. But if there's something in your soul that's saying, when I get to that level, I'll be the guy. Yeah, that's pride. Beware of respectable sins. Beware your respectable anger versus her unrespectable fornication. Beware your respectable impatience versus his unacceptable pornography. Beware your respectable lying versus her disordered affections. Beware your respectable tribalism. Now you talk about other tribes and other races versus the government's unacceptable stealing. This is why we sing songs like the ones we sang today. That my only hope is in Jesus. I can only be justified by him. Let me help you out. You know one of the best ways to kill pride? Pray this prayer. God, show me how sinful I am. I guarantee you God answers that prayer 100% of the time. And he does it to humble us. Because I can't have been shown my sin and then I treat you the same way the Pharisee treated the tax collector. It's not possible. Pray that prayer. It humbles us. And then we stop saying, look what he did. Look what she did. We start saying, look what God did for me. Look how much mercy he had on me. Look how he's still putting up with me. Look how he's working in me, for me, despite me. And this has implications on our evangelism. Yeah, 
we are not going to take the gospel to people we think are tax collectors. And you can sort of understand the Pharisee. Just to be clear, the only person a Pharisee, rather the only person a Jew, hated more than a Roman because they were under Roman colonialism, was the tax collector. Because this is the guy who's collaborating with Rome to oppress them. They despised those guys. But Jesus always does this funny thing in the book of Luke. He always keeps presenting the tax collectors as the guys who get it. And the rest of the Pharisees and the Jews as the guys who don't. What we want to do in our evangelism is not look at those tax collectors, but look at them and say, that was me. So the same way God saved me, I'm going to extend that salvation to them. By definition, the word saved means we were all once drowning, right? No one who's drowning comes out of the water and says, yeah, I know I was drowning, but I was drowning with class. <laughs> no, you were just drowning. Someone else saved you. I was just drowning in my sin and darkness. But God saved me by sending someone to grab my hand with the gospel and tell me, come home. And that's the privilege he's given us right now. So a couple of questions as we close. Question number one. Will we simply trust God? That he is a good judge, that he is a merciful savior, that regardless of what season you're in right now, maybe it's hard. Because the fact of the matter is, that's our lives, right? Your life and my life, we are either currently in a problem, about to leave a problem, or about to enter a new problem. Amen? Amen. So will we trust him? Question number two. Will we pray to God and not lose heart? And not give up? It doesn't have to be a half hour prayer. It can literally be waking up in the morning and saying, God, I don't even feel like praying. Help me, a sinner. And you go to work. Will we persist in that? And not lose heart? Will we persist in praying for him to come? That's Matthew 5, right? When you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy you're praying for Jesus to come back. That's what you're doing when you say thy kingdom come. That's what we are doing in part. Will we keep praying that prayer? Question number three. Will we ask God to show us our sin as individuals and as a church? Because you realize a whole church can be the Pharisee. We are the guys with the spirit. That church doesn't have the spirit. We are the guys with the great music. That other church is in a... We are the church with fantastic preaching. Those people need to learn how to preach. Yeah, Pharisee. Sin of comparison. Last question. Will we ask God to make us a praying, loving, evangelistic people? It's very hard to pray for tax collectors and not go to tax collectors. It's Matthew 9 and Matthew 10. Pray to the Lord for the harvest. Matthew 10, actually, you're the guy who's going to get the harvest. So will we pray? Because God can do it. There's this story from a historical writing of what happened when people prayed like tax collectors. It's set in the 1800s in the slave trade of Jamaica. And in one of these slave farms, the African slaves had started praying which was something illegal. So we pick up the story in that context. Determined to put an end to slave meetings in Jamaica, 
Some slave owners broke up a prayer meeting being led by a slave named David, one of Moses Hall's assistants. They seized David, murdered him, cut off his head, and placed it on a pole in the center of the village as a warning to other slaves. They dragged Moses Hall, that was the African leader, African pastor, if you will, of the church. They dragged Moses Hall up to the grisly object. And they said, now Moses Hall, whose head is that? The leader of the murderers asked. David's, Moses replied. Do you know why he's up there? For praying, sir, said, David, said Moses. No more of your prayer meetings, he said. If we catch you at it, we shall serve you like we did David. As the crowd watched, Moses knelt beside the pole and said, let us pray. <laughs> the other African Christians gathered around and knelt with him. And they prayed for the salvation of David's murderers. Friend, we can trust a God who will come through even in the face of our adversaries. We can trust a God to use us as the actual hands and feet of Christ in a nation that despises us. Will we seize that privilege? Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people Love Lagos